Well, good morning this Labor Day weekend. I'm delighted to see you here. This is the second of our three English-speaking services. In just a little while, we'll have our Spanish-speaking service uh, next door. And I just want to begin by saying I love the church. As a man, I love the church. Why? Because the church is the family of God. And my story is, is one of I didn't always love it. Man, for most of my life, I thought the church was boring. I thought it was irrelevant. I thought it was archaic. I really thought the church was for weak people. And then Jesus Christ transformed me. I mean, Jesus totally changed my life. And I discovered to my astonishment that according to the Bible, the church is where the action is. The church is actually the hope of the world. Because the church has been entrusted with the gospel. And the gospel alone is the power of God unto salvation. And in Jesus Christ, what are we? We are a family. A spiritual family. And our vision, our vision here at WBC at Wheaton Bible Church, and we believe this is rooted in God's word, is to make disciples that make disciples. Multiplication. Helping people encounter Jesus, grow in Jesus, and lead other people to Jesus. And so over the years, we like to say, man, we don't go. We don't just go to church. We are the church. Wherever we are, whatever we are uh, doing. That's why, by the way, um, we're launching this series on David next week. Spent a fair amount of time studying David's life out of First and Second Samuel. Because David, as much as anyone teaches us what it means to be a disciple, teaches us what it means to love God and, and to walk with God. And here at our church, we talk, as we heard Steve mention in, in the video, about three areas of discipleship. Loving God, growing together, and reaching the world. So healthy disciples don't just focus on one of these areas, or, or two, but all three. Loving God, growing together, being in community, and reaching the world. Now, for these two weeks, last week and, and, and today, we're looking at this critical second area of growing together, of community, our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. Why? Because we deeply believe if we are going to love God and we are going to reach the world, it'll only happen if we grow together. If we all, it'll only happen to the extent we are connected to one another. And if the kingdom of God is anything, I mean anything at all, it's a republic of love. Right? And if the church is anything, it's a spiritual family with a spiritual bond that even is deeper than the biological bond of nuclear families because the church lasts forever. So this church is a, a, a community of relationships. That's how God has hardwired it, uh, characterized by acceptance, openness, honesty, encouragement, engagement, and involvement. Sacrificial service and love. Jesus himself said, John chapter 13, the world will know you are my disciples by your love for one another. This past weekend, while Jeff was preaching, 
I had the privilege of marrying my niece, my brother's daughter, in Clemson, South Carolina. And it was a great family time, but it was an outdoor wedding. 4.30 in the afternoon with an outdoor reception. We're talking August, South Carolina. By the way, I've decided I'm going to return the favor someday, and we're going to have an outdoor wedding here in Chicago in January for the southern members of our family. I, I, I never uh, was so hot in a suit as I was that afternoon. As a matter of fact, it was so hot, the bride and the groom both fainted. Not really, just kidding. But it was really, really, really hot. But what struck me at this great family occasion is that nobody complained. Nobody complained about the weather. Everybody had a a great time because we're family. And we love being with each other and we don't get to be together that much. According to God's word, the same thing should be true with the church. So this morning, I want to look at a, a wonderful New Testament passage that both illustrates the importance of the family of God, our spiritual bond in Jesus Christ, and then helps us see what it looks like. So grab a Bible, the Bible's in front of you, turn to page one, it's about 1,162 Uh, Turn to Philippians chapter 2 in the New Testament. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. What I want to do is I want to look here at the call to community, then a couple killers, two community killers, then I want to look at the key, then we're going to conclude with the cure. So the call, the killers, the key, and the cure. And before I do that, before we read this, let me just mention a family matter that has to do with our children's ministry. If you've been a part of Wheaton Bible Church for a while, you know we take our children's ministry real seriously. As a matter of fact, we are so committed to it that we break our large children's ministry down into small groups. And that means it's adult intensive. Next week, we launch our children's ministry. We launch, we get past Labor Day weekend, we launch our fall year. We still need in our elementary age children's ministry, first through six, at this hour, the 945 hour, we still need about 25 small group leaders. Now, we have 75 already. We just need to finish. We need about 25 more. And I would love to encourage you to get involved, to pray about it, but get involved in the discipleship of our young children. We need to get this done so all our classrooms will be open next Sunday. Love for you to take that on on a weekly basis, or maybe you find somebody and and you go every other week, a friend, and you guys are in there. Let's get this done. Please join me in praying that we'll fill this uh, need. Now let's go to God's word, Philippians chapter 2 and verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, If any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility 
Consider others better than yourselves. Now, Paul does not say they are better. He says, consider them better. Verse 4. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude, well, it should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, literally emptied himself, taking the very nature of a servant, and being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amazing section. And what I want to do is I want to begin with this call, this call to community, the, the concept that's laid out in the first two verses. Now, depending on the Bible you're reading from, depending on the translation, there is at least one if in verse one and could be up to four of them. And these are rhetorical devices that we use all the time. So, for example, Rhonda may say to me, Rob, if you love me, you'll take out the trash. Now, she is not expressing any doubt when she says, if you love me. She's expressing certainty. And I say that because that's what's going on here in verse 1. Uh, we could translate these ifs, sin, since. Now, here's why this matters. Secular culture always, always influences religious faith. Our faith. And the individualism, the privatism, the narcissism of our North American culture are stiff headwinds that have caused North American Christianity to bend. To bend into this individualistic approach to Christianity, this me and Jesus, or I've got Jesus, I don't need the church. It's rampant today. Secular culture influences the church. Paul says exactly the opposite in verses 1 and 2. Because he teaches in light of the certainty of your salvation, since you have been united, since you are one with Christ, since you've experienced the love, the grace, the forgiveness, the presence of the Holy Spirit, all in Jesus Christ, that's verse 1, we must therefore love one another. Love one another. Love one another in such a way that it becomes supernatural evidence of the life of Jesus Christ coursing through our church, which is in stark contrast to the disunity, the discord, the hate in the world at large. Paul's point in these first two verses is if you know Jesus Christ, God has saved you to be an instrument of love an instrument of unity, an instrument of harmony, an instrument of healing in your church. You see, according to Paul, to know Christ is to be committed to the body of Christ. 
Our walk with Christ is a community project. We need each other to be real, to be strong, to to transcend the things going on around us. Now think about this. There's a young mother right now who is feeling overwhelmed. She is feeling inadequate. She's really struggling with potty training her son. And she needs love. She needs support. There's a student who's wrestling with the attractiveness of the world, alcohol, sex, drugs. God has appointed you to be an ambassador of love in his life. A single person is facing the death of a dream and needs to be loved. Married couple, their relationship is existing on fumes and all it's going to take is one little spark and it's going to burst into flames. God has appointed you to be an agent of reconciliation, an agent of grace. Children, their dad has just walked out on them. Somebody else, it's cancer. For someone else, it's debt. Huge financial pressure. Your neighbor just down the hall or around the corner, down down the street, is caught right now in a, a dark web of spiritual warfare. They need love. They need you. You see, the loving unity Paul is describing here in verses 1 and 2 isn't about liking people. It's not about affinity. It's not about romantic affection. It's not even about being nice. It's the deep-seated sacrificial commitment to seek another person's highest good because you have been redeemed by Jesus Christ. So Paul says in verse 2, then make my joy complete. By being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. And when you put these first two verses together, you discover that God has given us Jesus to rescue us from ourselves so we can live for him and live for each other. The cross doesn't take away our humanity. It gives it back, and we discover it in relationships and community. In unity. So salvation is the root. That's verse 1. Our unity, our relationships, our community is a fruit. That's verse 2. Now that's the call. And it illustrates the importance of the church of Jesus Christ. But there's a problem. A, 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 A significant problem. Because there are two community killers that Paul now turns to. And there's a problem because there's something fundamentally wrong with the human heart. And here Paul illustrates that. Look at verse 3. The first killer is selfish ambition. Selfish ambition Paul has just used in chapter 1 and verse 17 to describe his enemies. Now he's talking about its existence in the church. 
And it refers to self-centered rivalry, to fighting, to mean-spirited competitiveness that divides people, divides families, divides churches, divides countries. Selfish ambition is living to fight, which is very different than fighting to live. It's being ruled by hate or prejudice or self-centeredness. Now, I once heard someone say, I thought this was so helpful, that our relationships with other people are either governed by truth or by needs. And if it's truth, then you will love people as Christ wants you to love people because you are secure in Christ's love for you. But if it's your needs that dominate your relationships, over time, you're going to be impossible to be around. Because you're demanding, or you're angry, or you're clingy, or you're always in a funk. Because you refuse to let God's love for you penetrate your heart and penetrate penetrate your relationships, and so you end up taking everything personally. Why did you look at me like that? On the inside, for you, it's not about truth. It's about your needs. And when Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition, he's assuming that truth, not your needs, dominates your relationships. But there's a second killer here. I think it's even bigger. I think it's even darker, uh, even deeper. It's translated here, vain conceit. It's from one Greek word, a compound word, and it literally means empty glory. The Greek word for glory is doxa, and it means important. It means weighty. It means to matter. So vain conceit is a person who is starving for glory, starving for significance. It's a man, it's a woman who at the core of their being believes that he or she doesn't matter and will do anything to prove they do. You know, the worst thing for a human being is not to be hated. The worst thing is to be ignored. Our greatest fear as humans is that we will prove to be irrelevant, lightweight, insignificant. And so we, in ways that are just crazy, we cling to status, we cling to performance, we cling to achievement, we cling to stuff, we cling to other people to make us feel better. All because we are glory starved. All because we are glory empty. Uh, Because inside, in the interior of our lives, we know we are small, so we try to act big. And if anybody else, by the way, comes along and treats us as small, man, we lash out. Because we are glory empty. Now why? Why are we that way even in the church? And the answer is because of sin. Now, unloving parents may aggravate the problem, 
but sin, not parents, is the cause. You see, we were made for glory. We were invested with glory. We were made to glorify God. And we were created with a a spiritual, a physical, a a relational glory. But we fell into sin. And we became selfishly ambitious. And glory empty. And deep down we long, we long for that glory we've lost. But because of our sin, we try to manufacture it in all sorts of crazy ways, damaging ways. And the smaller we feel, the bigger we act. And it's pride. What is pride? Pride is addiction to glory, your glory. Taken to an extreme. And pride always, always, always kills community. Because pride makes you boring. As somebody else has said, pride makes you a yawn. Because you're full of yourself. And you become hard to be around. And over time, you look around and and nobody's around you. Because you are a person that's consumed with yourself. Because your glory tank has been on empty. And Paul's point here is if there is ever to be community, we must do nothing, nothing, nothing out of these two community killers. So Paul, what's the alternative? Let's go on. Look at the second half of verse 3. Here we have the key. And I got to tell you, when I was thinking about this message, and I, you know, you ask me, you know, what, what is key to community? And I'd say things like love. I'd say things like, you know, um, looking out for other people. I, I'd say some of these things, uh, uh, being nice. But you know what Paul says the key is? He says the key is community. I, I'm, I'm sorry, the key is humility. I did not see this coming. The key to community, the key to marriage, the key to friendship, the key to relationships is humility. Paul says, but in humility, consider others better than yourselves. What does healthy Christian community look like? Well, it's different all over the world. But there is always one thing in common at the heart, at the core, underneath everything is humility. What is humility? Humility is modesty. It's, it's gentleness. It, it, it's a deference uh, rooted in seeing yourself as God sees you. As both a sinner and a child of grace. So you are a person as a follower of Christ. You understand your dual identity. You own your brokenness. You own your pathology, uh, your pride, your self-centeredness, your, your sin. But you cling to the grace and the forgiveness, uh, the righteousness that is yours in Jesus Christ. Now, outside the Bible in Paul's day in the first century, e- even today, humility is often seen as weakness, as softness. I mean, we live in a world that exalts strength and power, domination. 
But this word humility occurs over 250 times in the Bible for a reason. And the reason is the only way you and I can access the living, transcendent God of the universe because of our sin is in humility. It's understanding we bring nothing to the table. We don't merit salvation. We don't merit God's uh, uh, pleasure. We're, we're sinners. So we continually cast ourselves on God's mercy. That's humility. Humility. And the only thing that will destroy a person now and forever is a lack of humility. A refusal to submit to God. So a little later in the New Testament, Peter says, the Apostle Peter says, humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he might exalt you at the right time in, in, in due time. Peter is saying, as Paul is saying, the key to community is humility. Now, humility is not being down on yourself. I'm a terrible person. Nor is it being full of yourself. I'm the best person ever. It's seeing yourself again as God sees you. As a work in progress. As, as a person who's in the middle of their sanctification. The middle of becoming like Christ. As a person with strengths and weaknesses. Sinner. But child of grace. Humble people are teachable. Humble people are quick to admit they're wrong. If you could listen in on the prayers of humble people, you would hear them confess sin a lot. Humble people are slow to judge, slow to criticize. Paul says the key to community is humility. Now, what he does as he moves from verse 3 to verse 4 is very interesting. It's like he goes from the attitude we are to have, this attitude of humility, to the action. So in verse 4, he unpacks what this looks like in action. Notice he says, each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. In other words, humility isn't thinking less of yourself. It is thinking of yourself less. Because you are focused on the people around you. So you get involved, you get engaged, you pick up the phone, you send emails, you travel, you go. You want to help people become all they can be. Now someone else has said, you know, you and I don't walk around um, saying, I, I, you know, today I just love the way my wrist is bending. You're not going to go, if you're a student, you're not going to go to school tomorrow. You're not going to walk in the office and say, man, this morning has just been great. My, I just love my knees and the way they bend. You know, if they're healthy, if they're working, you don't focus on them. But if they're not healthy, you're not healthy. You're focused on them. Verses 3 and 4 mean healthy people focus on others. They step into other people's problems. They come alongside people with needs. These are the people in your small group that ask questions, ask you questions about yourself. They don't just talk, talk, talk. They listen. 
They're the ones that call you and say, hey, man, how you doing? You mentioned this is a prayer request. Just want you to know I'm praying, want to see how it's going. Hey, do you want to get together for breakfast? Hey, do you want to do this? Hey, how can I help? Earlier this week, I had breakfast with a guy who's a really good friend of mine. And he has spent years pouring his life into young men here at Wheaton Bible Church. And now he's moving. He's moving out of state. And I am really bummed because he has lived verses 3 and 4. Earlier this week, um, Rhonda got a call. One of her dearest and oldest friends was riding her horse in Ohio, and either she got bucked off or fell off, and she fell on her neck, broke her neck, and on Friday she died. And Mary was verse 4 to Rhonda. Uh, just two weeks ago, she wrote Rhonda this lovely letter encouraging Rhonda. She poured her life into Rhonda. They, they worked hard, even though they were a couple states apart, to get together. She would uh, talk to Rhonda, encourage Rhonda. She was committed, as Paul says, to Rhonda's interests. Who are you like that with? Christian community lived out in the body of Christ is not rocket science. And if you've heard anything I have said this morning, I want you to understand it's a heart thing. And it will always, always be a challenge because we have sinful, fallen hearts. And this is precisely, by the way, why Paul doesn't stop with verse 4. It's why he shifts and beginning in verse 5 turns to this extraordinary example of Jesus Christ. Because beginning in verse 5 all the way through verse 11, Paul moves to the cure. And the cure is Jesus Christ. Here we have, beginning in verse 5, one of the greatest statements in all of the New Testament about the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And it's a poem or it's a song. That's why it looks the way it does on your page. And it begins with Christ's pre-existence, his deity, then goes uh, to Jesus' incarnation, then to his atonement, and then finally to his exaltation. So all of that, deity, incarnation, atonement, glory, is all right here in these verses. Yet what's interesting is in this context, it's an illustration. Paul says this about Jesus to give us an example of how we are to relate to one another in the body. And Paul's point is if Jesus humbled himself for you, you can humble yourself for others. No one, Paul is saying, has ever been more humble than Jesus Christ. I mean, think about that. And the reason humility is right at the core of community is because that's exactly how Jesus Christ lived. And what does Jesus teach us? Jesus teaches us the only way up is down. The cross comes before the crown. Humility before glory. 
But Jesus isn't just merely our example here. Jesus is also our cure. You see, and, and, and hear me in this. You and I cannot work on our humility directly. So if you want to get up tomorrow morning and say, you know, today I'm going to give myself to working on my humility. I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. You know what happens? You end up being totally consumed with yourself. And humility is self-forgetfulness. You cannot work on humility directly. You work on humility by looking to another. By looking to Jesus. It's taking your eyes off yourself and fixing them on Jesus Christ. So the cure to your selfish ambition, to my empty glory, this empty glory tank I have, is looking to Jesus Christ and what he did 2,000 years ago on the cross when he died in our place for our sins. And what does Paul tell us here? Well, look at some of the the verses. Paul tells us that Jesus gave up his glory in verse 7. He made himself nothing. That is, he emptied himself. But he didn't empty himself of of his deity, he emptied himself of his glory, of his beauty, of his uh, uh, transcendence, his appearance. And he became weak, poor, and was rejected. As a matter of fact, Isaiah 53, that great um, messianic uh, prophecy, tells us that Jesus had no beauty or majesty that attracted us to him. No beauty, no majesty. He left it in heaven. Jesus Christ gave up his reputation and Jesus became small and made himself nothing in order to rescue us from ourselves, from our sin. Jesus became empty so you and I could become full. Jesus became poor so we could become rich. Jesus died that we might live. Jesus Christ was treated the way we deserve. So when we believe, we will be treated the way he deserves. Jesus looks at you. And says, you're my child. I love you. I love you more than anything in the universe. Uh, I died for you. I have come to take away your sin and to make you righteous uh, by your faith in me. And that's forever. And to the extent you and I believe that and live that, And we take, according to verse 5, that attitude in ourselves. So we look to Jesus and we bring Jesus into ourselves. All sorts of things happen. Along the way, because we're looking at Jesus, we are forgetting about ourselves. Along the way, because we're looking to Jesus, we are filled with a greater glory. Along the way, we become more humble. Along the way, we become more like Jesus. And along the way, the people around us see genuine Christian community. So the cure for what ails the human heart, uh, the cure for our churches, the cure for our marriages, the cure for our families and our communities is Jesus. 
Community is never a bunch of do's and don'ts. It's ultimately a matter of resting in Jesus, looking at Jesus, and the result will be glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Speak to us. Bless us for Jesus' sake. Amen.